Hey, what's up, everyone? Welcome to Crowcast Podcast. I'm Shane. Hey, I'm Ronnie. And these are the audio versions of the interviews we have had with our special guests on Crowcast. This episode is with Chris Buck. Uh, absolutely smashing guy. Um, this was October the 13th. Um, yet again, for anybody wanting to, you should know it by now if you've been listening to the episodes. Episode 30 um, on YouTube. So if you want a visual and you want to see what me, Shane, and the guys got up to after Chris joined us, um, get over to YouTube, watch episode 30. But absolutely brilliant, mate, and a great suggestion for you to to bring him onto the Crowcast because oh, I know you've yeah, followed man. him. This was this was one of my most favorite um um Crowcasts. I mean, Chris is it's just flat out a, a lovely guy, first and foremost. But I mean that the ability this guy has on the guitar is incredible. Um, we talk to him, he talks about how he's coping with all his YouTube viewers, how that's growing to a staggering amount of followers um some really big names following him that he goes on and mentions um and obviously being the guitarist in the band back in evans um incredible dude i I really vibed off it i know you did too yeah, incredible. I, I'm exactly the same as you. You actually put me onto him on Instagram. Um, you've been saying about getting him on the Crowcast. I'm so glad we did. I might actually go and listen to this again. So let's get into it. Here we go. Strap in. This is Crowcast Podcast. We are close. <laughs> Yeah, let's get let's get them on as soon as possible. Ladies and gentlemen, please welcome the awesome Chris Buck. Hey, hello. How's it going? What's happening? Comparative, you all look like you're sat in like an ITV studio, and I look like I'm in a basement somewhere. So. (laughs) (laughs) Oh, I don't know about he does. He's he's gone and spent a bit of money on this stuff. yeah, it's I also have a small th- mammal powering my internet. So if I, if I... <laughs> sorry, boys. <laughs> yeah, it's taken thirty weeks, Chris. Um, if you would have looked at episode one, it, it didn't look like this. It's just we've had nothing else to do but upgrade our uh, our backdrops and technical gear, and yeah, yeah, yeah. Oh, fair one. Those things. I was Germany. It was amazing, dude. Absolutely amazing. Have you played Germany? Yeah, once or twice. Um, I'm trying to think where I've been all together. Frankfurt. Um, oh, man. Well, yeah. Uh, Bavaria. I've done some things dotted around, but nothing in a kind of like a tour format so much as just one or two gigs spread about. But it's a cool country. It's a really it nice is. place. They, they really look after you. Um, they just love their rock music. They're just like wonderful hosts, man. They were, they were incredible to us. It's that kind of enthusiasm for rock and roll over there as well, yeah. which... Seems to manifest itself in them, as you said, taking care of bands and actually going the extra mile to sort of make sure that you're fed and watered and, and looked after, which is more than can be said for a lot of places. Uh, well, yeah, elsewhere. Yeah, yeah. I think the UK the UK could definitely take a thing or two from them. The venues yeah. in particular. That, that was the thing I was uh, I was dancing around then. <laughs> oh, I'll just say it. I'll just delegate it. <laughs> yeah, man. So how, how have you been bed in lockdown? Yeah, not too bad. All things considered, I kind of feel like I'm the the Bond villain that's done well when the rest of the world is kind of burning. Because um, I've been really busy with just, I mean, it's kind of part and parcel, really, of um, 
having done so much online work, I guess, in the past yeah. kind of two years, you know, I mean, started the YouTube thing. Um, obviously, none of that was done with the the sort of intention of, well, when the global pandemic rolls around, I'll be okay. Um, but it's kind of been one of the sort of happy coincidences, I guess. Instead of splitting it 50% online, 50% live work, suddenly it becomes 100% online. Um, and obviously, I guess, especially in the kind of first three or four months of it, everyone kind of panicked all the companies that I ordinarily do work with panicked and going, what do we do? We've never, we've never kind of encountered this before. We still need online content and we can't go out and film bands. So we'll just kind of, we'll bring them to you, you know? So I was kind of inundated and, and still am to an extent as well. We're just kind of, yeah, snowed under with um, just kind of whether it's producing content for brands or kind of whatever, you know, just bits and bobs, yeah. which is, don't get me wrong. I, I'm relishing the thought of kind of getting out and actually playing to some people and playing with mates again, but it's kind of been um, a bit of a lifesaver by all accounts. So, well, to be honest, mate, I mean, you were flying on on your YouTube channel. I mean, how many subscribers have we got now? It's like, um, oh, good question. I think around seventy thousand. I think I remember it in seventy recently. I honestly haven't looked since then. The, the big thing that's coming up is ten million views across the channel, which wow. is, um, yeah, a bit. Um, surreal really when you think about it 10 million you sort of you get into this cycle of you know i I try not to look at the numbers too much because it's it's entire well for one it's entirely dispirited because there are there's always something else that you're chasing and yeah. if, if if one video gets kind of a hundred thousand views then you kind of think well why didn't it get 150 um mm. so it's kind of it's a bit of a hamster wheel to kind of find yourself on that so i try not to go into it too much um, but inevitably, you know, we're all human and we all kind of facts and figures and numbers are kind of what we sort of live and breathe really. But, um, yeah, it's, you know, it's, like I said, it's kept me sane really. And it's kind of still allowed me to reach an audience like you boys. It's kind of adapting and kind of making the most of a bad situation. And yeah. you guys went straight away and started doing the Crowcast. It's kind of yeah. it's just making the most of, as I said, like a bad situation, I guess. Yeah. Yeah. Do you find yourself under pressure now to come up with new sort of, oh yeah yeah that's the that's honestly that's the horrible thing about and you know bloody hell i could be down a mine um i don't know where, <laughs> where i don't know where that would be but i could be i guess if it was 1950 um so there's there's definitely worse things to do but that is the that's the kind of hardest bit about it is having a new idea every week and mm-hmm. and especially suddenly at the start of lockdown when i found myself with all this time on my hands it was a case of right well instead of shooting literally one video a week and that being the week's video so i'm I'm one of these guys that unless i kind of have a deadline to work to i'll just procrastinate until the end of time you know so having friday being where friday is and it's pretty immovable and pretty indefinite i always kind of work towards friday um whereas suddenly at the start of lockdown it was like well i've got all this time on my hands i might as well just start producing them in advance so the first like month of lockdown i was just like an animal just couldn't literally couldn't do enough i was just kind of flat out 24 7 working which is great until you just hit a wall and burn out and then it was like okay maybe i'm kind of maybe i over egged the pudding a little bit to start off with so um it kind of tapered off then but like you said just thinking of stuff to talk about every week you know and it's it's obviously guitar based or music based or whatever so yeah. it always has to kind of be around that theme but bloody hell there's only so many wild pedals you can talk about really in there so yeah, it's, yeah. um yeah it's that's that's the the drawback of it but as i said it's uh it's not working in a bloody pit somewhere so well dude i'm not just saying this i'm, I'm a huge fan I, I love the way you express yourself on the guitar it's incredible oh, I, the way your technique is unreal 
Um, anybody who hasn't seen Chris, please go and see um, his YouTube channel. He is absolutely unreal. Um, if you if you are like where have you been, but um, dude, there's 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 like you know musicians, and then there's there's other people then that can just is another level. And I believe like you're you're one of the best guitarists I've ever seen. But and I'm not just blowing <laughs> it's The fact you're Welsh as well is incredible. But um. I was going to say this is the first of these like online things I've done where I can actually talk like I normally talk like, and not worry too, not worry too much about everyone else not being able to understand the bloody word I'm saying. <laughs> Honestly, that speaking about the YouTube thing, that was like such a thing to start off with. Just it's, I mean, it's a Welsh thing to talk quickly. Words yeah. suddenly that shouldn't be joined up are suddenly joined up, and it all kind of rolls into one thing. Yeah. And um, just, I was having comments from people who maybe English, well, not even English is their second language. English is their first language and they still can't understand the word I'm saying. Yeah. So yeah. Um, comparatively now, I speak like the Queen to uh, like a year ago. But um, yeah. The first shows we did, you remember, Ron, I think um, we went to London and Newcastle and people were just saying, he's like, Feynman, Spa, uh, Feynman Salmon Spoon. And I like, yeah, because I just I speak so quick on stage, and and I, I even sound more Welsh with a microphone. Yeah. I don't know yeah, how yeah. that happens, but it's I I don't think I sound particularly Welsh to be honest. And then kind of it's got to the point now, not just. I don't listen to myself back and think I sound particularly Welsh, but every now and then someone will go, you were the Welshiest sounding person I've ever met. So maybe it's, uh, it's still in there, but uh, no, it, it, it's weird. And I think it's, it's almost like a nervousness thing as well. If you're on stage, you're full of adrenaline, you talk, you talk yeah. faster and, and your acting becomes more pronounced. So yeah, yeah. that's very human, I think. But um, no, thank you very much for the kind words, man. Very kind of you. Uh, but I mean, I mean, we, as a band, we've done the same sort of venues and stuff. But um, when I did that, the cozy bash thing with you, yeah, um, yeah. wow, that was such a big deal for me, man. To be on stage with you guys, and um, <laughs> no, it was incredible, wasn't it? No, it was. It was a great night. It's such a shame. I mean, that was kind of the last casualty this year, I guess, for us. Obviously, rock stock as well. But that was the kind of one thing I was kind of clinging to, you know, kind of. Uh, yeah, maybe that maybe that'll happen because, I mean, bloody hell, Rockstock. Um, that when was that kind of all first kind of organised March or whatever? And I remember they kind of they kind of got in touch, said, "Would you be up for doing it?" It's in December. Everything will be fine by then. And you're like, "God, yeah, of course it will be." That's like eight months away. Yeah. And uh, and then the closer it gets, you're thinking, "Okay, maybe if 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 six people aren't allowed in the same room, then maybe a couple of thousand people in Trackle Bay might be a bit of a push." Um, <laughs> Yeah, and it kind of the closer we got, it dawned on me like, ah, oh, the cozy bash is gone as well. So yeah. it's been crappier by all accounts, isn't it? They really have, man. They really have. But they, incredible with you, bud, with, with what you're doing online and stuff. I, I love your video, but I can't wait for them to come on. They like, you've got <laughs> some big hitters following you as well, dude. You know, I don't want to name drop, but there's some big hitters following you, bud. I'd, uh, one of my mates texted me the other day saying he started playing a game on my Instagram called What the Buck. Um, where you'll flick through to see who's liked posts, and it is a bit, it's a bit surreal. I had a comment come through from from Miles Kennedy the other day that was like, "Oh, cool, that's nice to know he's watching." Um, yeah. So yeah, it's a bit a bit surreal. I mean, it's kind of part and parcel of social media, I guess, in that you never know, you never know who's watching you. The first moment I had of that, where of course you put these videos out, and aside from the people who actually comment, you you have no idea who's watching. You know, you might have kind of 10 or 10,000 views on a video. You don't know who those people are unless they physically leave a comment. 
and um, a mate of mine called Adam Slack, who was the guitarist in a band called The Struts, um, got in touch uh, on Instagram actually saying, hi mate, love you playing. Um, kind of let's keep in touch. So we kept in touch. And then about a month later, I had a message off him, a screenshot of a text conversation because they toured with the Foo Fighters. They'd done a couple of stadium shows with the Foo Fighters. And he sent me a screenshot through Pat Smear and got in touch with him going, hi mate, um, saw this, came across this guy on YouTube, Chris Buck. He's from your neck of the woods. You must know. You must know him, surely. And um, and Adam from Derby. So he's like, well, relatively speaking, I guess if you're from a place as big as the US, Derby is very close. It is Wales, in essence. Um, and uh, he sent it on to me. I was like, what is Pat Smear doing watching my videos? That's insane. And that was like the first moment of like, you never, you literally never know who's watching. You know, so strange. Wow, that's incredible, bud. But uh, it just took me back to watching Nirvana Unplugged, you know, thinking, oh, that's that guy. It was just yeah. a bit, bit mad. But, um, yeah, it's, you know, social media and it's that kind of the – I have a severe love-hate relationship, I think, with social media because, don't get me wrong, it's been a lifesaver through times like this and, you know, kept me going ultimately, kept putting kind of bread on the table at the time when – a lot of mates are kind of dying on their ass for want of a better phrase, you know, guys who are entirely reliant on live work, um, which is kind of most of us. Um, but as I said, I do have a bit of a love or hate, love hate relationship with it in that it is just relentless and you can't have a break from it for fear of kind of falling into obscurity. And especially it's all about momentum in there. And especially you guys are like the perfect example. You were the, the band on everyone's lips. Even even still throughout this, miraculously, thanks to stuff like this. But it's so, just so frustrating to get to the point of kind of, right, we're really building momentum. And then yeah. something insane like this happens. And you think, right, how do we maintain that momentum? And I guess the only saving grace of it is kind of everyone is in the same boat. So it's not a case of me losing momentum or you losing momentum. It's everyone has kind of had the press pause for a while. But yeah, just the relentlessness of social media and having the kind of, there's no mystique anymore i think is part of my issue with it you know if you wanted to see led zeppelin back in 76 you had to go and see led zeppelin or buy a record jimmy page wasn't posting how he plays the stairway to heaven solo on instagram you know it's kind of yeah it's a bit of a pain in the ass i, I like it and i kind of would happily do it away with it all at the same time so strange yeah man it's your bread and butter now dude it's mad yeah that's that's the thing, you know. I'd be at the same time being aware that if it wasn't for that, I probably wouldn't be sat here talking, you know. So, you know, yeah, I'll stop moaning. Is the long and the short of it, really? Just get on with it. Isn't it? <laughs> nah, mate, I, I understand what you're saying. So let's go back in, Chris. So when when was the, when did you pick up the guitar? What what age were you? About three weeks ago, I think. Um, <laughs> no, I would have been. Um, I want to say about thirteen, fourteen, something like that. It was like second year comp. And um, it was a mate of mine, um, mate slash arch nemesis in the own, the kind of way that you can have friends and arch nemesis, nemesis all in the same person yeah, when yeah. you're like 13, 14. It was a mate yeah. of mine started playing guitar and he was better at everything than I was. He was faster, he was taller, so he's better at sport, um, better in school, just everything he did, he was kind of better at than me. Um, so he started playing guitar and I was like, I'm going to be better than guitar, you know, than him. Um, and he gave up after about six weeks. So I kind of won by default, really. Um, <laughs> but I just kind of, it was the only thing I've ever done in my life where it was like, oh, cool, this makes sense. Like everything else I'd tried till that point, whether it was like football, or rugby, or skateboarding, it was all like, this is a bit of an effort, you know? And I don't know whether I feel like I'm getting enough out of it to justify the amount of effort I'm putting into it. Yeah. Um, 
Whereas guitar, like straight away, it was like, oh, cool, this makes sense. And if you put your finger there and there, then you get this chord. Or if you move your finger up, the note gets higher. It's like, oh, cool, that makes sense. You know, and the more the more I, more time I spent with it, the better I got at it. Um, so that so, was like, was anybody sorry. in your class that was musical, or was it just you want to have lessons? Not really. My old man was kind of always intrigued by guitars. He had a um, a Rossetti Lucky Star. He dug it out to show me a while ago, which was like this horrific, like Woolworths learner guitar given to him back in the 60s um, yeah. that was just nigh on unplayable. So he never really learned as much as that kind of frustrated him. So I think as soon as he was kind of in a position to kind of maybe indulge himself a little bit, I think it was pretty much as I came along, he bought himself a US Strat. And that was, I remember that when I was a kid, it was always in its case because he didn't want me knocking it over or trying to eat it or something. Um, it was always in its case and it was always stuffed down behind the back of the sofa. And it was always like a cool special occasion when he'd go and dig out this guitar. Um, so I was always intrigued by it, but he couldn't play. He plays four chords, um, two of which are the same chord, just played with different fingers. So um, he's really not a player in any respect, um, bless him. Um, but he kind of, he was just always intrigued by it. So there was always a guitar around, which I would kind of pick up and bash on. So I remember being given a a three quarter size acoustic guitar when I was a kid. Um, and it's weird kind of, I think you had to try and knock it out to me because every time I'd pick it up, I'd pick it up left-handed and, um, my old man had been left-handed as a kid and his old man had been left-handed back in the days when left-handed equals devil worshiper. Yeah. Yeah. Um, so he kind of had it, he'd had it knocked out of him as a kid. My dad had started writing with his left hand and my grandfather who'd had a lifetime of smudging words going across a page and all this kind of stuff was like, no, other hand. So I think when I started exhibiting the early signs of being a lefty, he was like, nope, over we go. Um, but um, yeah, so I guess kind of 13, 14, something like that and just kind of went at it hammer and tongs. You know, it was, if you're going to, discover anything around kind of that you were going to be obsessed with. You might as well do it just before you take your GCSEs. Um, yeah. Cause then that suddenly ensures that if you're not very good at guitar, then you are stuffed. So <laughs> um, yeah. So uh, what's that? God, that's like 15, 16 years, I guess now, which feels like I said, it feels it genuinely feels like a lifetime some days. And then it feels about three weeks other days. It's one of those things. So yeah, um, yeah a long time ago. So when when was um you know because you're you're playing mate is like from a singer's point of view I know it sounds really cliche you make the guitar sing blah 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 but the, you really do your 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 playing is like um like like a vocalist it's oh, it's not it's not just like your notes how you bend how many you do like two or three bends within a bend do you know what I mean it's, <laughs> it's, not, it's not like your normal um playing i and and you 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 it's like you're uh you're the front man yeah it's melodic in a shame it's yeah. really like loads of feel it's got that you know oh, I, mean, I listen to your stuff sometimes and i think that's where i would go that's where i would want to go naturally as a singer and you're yeah, doing yeah. well this is the thing thank you by the way that's very kind of you i can't sing for toffee i've got a voice like a goose farting in the fog <laughs> um so the the further i am away from a microphone the better so I mean, inevitably, when you're learning to play guitar, you've kind of come up through all the same influences that everyone else kind of comes up through, you know, like the first guy that I really latched onto in a big way was Slash. You know, I was just obsessed with guns. Anything GNR I get my hands on, I would kind of, you know, I had a cupboard full of uh, bootlegs that I downloaded and burnt to disc. And I would just listen to these bootlegs, like of horrific quality. Someone recorded them on a potato back in 1987 in like, I don't know, Burbank. 
um, just horrific things, and I would just obsess over them. So I was like really um, kind of just obsessive over Slash, and then kind of started working my way back backwards from that. I guess you know, again, everything I kind of ever did was. I kind of worked my way backwards from from more recent bands, I guess, which I guess is inevitable. You know, you're not going to start off with Zeppelin. You'll maybe find find Aerosmith and think, well, who were their influences, or who were Guns and Roses influences, and you kind of work your way back all the way back to like Robert Johnson or whatever. Um, and yeah, like I said, I kind of came up through all this, the obvious guitar influences. Stevie Ray, Eric Clapton was a big one. Um, Slash kind of all the usual suspects, I guess, in that respect. And then the older I got, I mean, a, a big one for me was I played with Slash in Birmingham in back in 2012 at the NIA, um, which was, oh, there we go. That's coincidental, isn't it? That must have been unbelievable. It was a bit mental. It's um, it's so funny. I told this story recently, but it bears worth repeating. Um, I wasn't allowed to tell him. Well, it wasn't that I wasn't allowed to tell anyone prior to it, but I think it, there was a sense of like, if you blab about it beforehand, it all, it all looks a bit kind of contrived and it all looks a bit just forced. Keep it quiet and it looks like a cool kind of like, oh, that's a mate of mine, you know, I'll invite him up the jam. Um, and it all came about through my manager, Alan, um, who obviously managed guns from 86 to 91. So it was kind of, you know, took him from a shitty kind of LA club band through to Wembley. Um, so he's obviously kind of still good mates with Slash. So it all came about through that and all culminated in a phone call from Slash while I was wandering around Liddles, um, <laughs> up and down that middle aisle, trying to decide whether to buy a piece of cheese or a jackhammer or a four-man tent. Um, and um, just Slash phoned me. He was like, do you want to come up and play? And I was like, uh, at what, a sound check? And he was like, no, a gig. And I was like, oh, yeah, all right, cool. That sounds good. Um, sorry, I'm washing my ear. Um, and... Um, <laughs> It was, I think the NIA is like 13,000 people, I think. It's something mental. And um, I, I, honestly, I can't remember any of it. I remember walking on. I remember Miles Kennedy coming up and kind of going, I was stood slide stage before I went on and Miles came over and was like, how are you doing? And I was like, really nervous. And he was like, don't worry, you're fine at soundcheck. And as soon as he said that, it was like just all the pressure went. And he was like, oh, cool. Miles Kennedy thinks I'm all right. I need to play a bit. Um, I'll be fine. So all I remember of it is walking on and walking off. The rest of it is kind of like a car crash or something where your mind like blanks it out. Um, but really happily, um, there were some guys from, no doubt fans of yours actually, Andrew Peck and Julie from, um, from Abakan in my neck of the woods, um, happened to be there. Knew nothing of the fact that I was playing. So it was entirely co- coincidental wow. that not only that they were there, but they happened to be filming for the bit where Slash introduced me. And obviously they are like really taken aback by it. Um, not only by the fact that I'm coming on stage with Slash, but by the fact that he introduced me as a lad from Birmingham. <laughs> <'Cause>, <laughs> yeah. um, at the time, my uh, my wife, my then girlfriend, now wife was living in Birmingham. So I was kind of semi-resident. I was semi kind of uh, honorary Brummy. And, yeah. um, and you can hear Julie, Andrew's wife on the video going, uh, Slash goes, it's a lad from Birmingham. It's clear as me. And you can hear Julie going, no, he's not. He's from Wales. <laughs> <laughs> so the kind of the sole video from that or the sole decent quality video of that entire event is introduced by Julie going no he's from Wales <laughs> so uh, yeah that was a bit of a mental experience but um, yeah I can't remember how we got into that yeah so Slash was a big influence but I think I was very conscious of obviously I'd kind of I didn't realise Alan my manager had been sending videos and clips and tracks to Slash for a long time prior 
prior to that, you know, of me. And Slash obviously liked what he heard and was cool with the idea of getting me up. But Alan was very much kind of waiting for the moment where I wasn't just mini Slash anymore. I was kind of, you know, like three years prior to that, if if you told me I could have walked on wearing a top hat as well, I would have been all over it. Um, <laughs> I was really kind of, you know, low slang Les Paul, very much kind of Dime Marshall. That was me. Um, and I think, not that there's anything wrong with that, but Alan was just very aware of the fact that if I go on there and try to out slash slash, we, you're only on to lose us. So once I'd started playing a strat and once I'd made a bit more of a concerted effort to try and sound like me and less like the guys that I kind of grew up listening to, um, Alan kind of put the phone call in and said, slash, obviously, can you, are you up for having Chris the Jam, you know? Um, but it was kind of from that moment onwards, really, I made a really concerted effort to start trying to incorporate like other influences into my playing. So like you said, the vocal thing is a big, big thing for me. A lot of my favorite musicians, full stop, not just guitar players, are people like, I don't know, Otis Redding or Sam Cooke or Aretha Franklin, Paul Rogers, like great voices. And it's not just a tonal thing. It's not just the way they sing. It's the way they kind of go in and into notes or out of them or kind of drop off notes or vibrato or whatever. You know, like for so many guitarists, vibrato is a thing that you kind of frantically apply to every note. And it's kind of immovable. The, the speed of it doesn't change. The, the intensity of it doesn't change. And ultimately, for me, vibrato and stuff like that has always been about emulating the human voice, which naturally, if you hold a note, will start to decay and start to kind of vibrate and warble very slightly. So just simple things like maybe wait a second before you stick vibrato on a note, because then when you do stick vibrato on it, it's 10 times more meaningful than just landing on it and going alpha leather with an up and downer, you know? Yeah. Um, so stuff like that and then as a kind of natural extension of that you start thinking well vocalists don't just do one note at a time you know they're kind of capable of sliding in and out of notes or you know like i mean pitchy is one of these words that's kind of thrown around as like a negative you listen to any great kind of vocalist whether it's aretha franklin or ella fitzgerald they're all pitchy they're all all over the place but it's those little idiosyncrasies where they kind of you know, not out of tune, but just kind of being subtly in and around the note. That's what makes it magical. So just yeah. trying to do stuff like that and trying to incorporate more stuff like that into my guitar playing. And the the thing is about it, I guess, initially, ask anyone who heard me kind of practicing that stuff, it can sound like a kind of dying cat for quite a while. But but the more kind of confident you get with it, the more accurate you become and the, the better you get at nailing it nailing it ultimately i guess so it's it's one of those things that a lot of people then seem to identify that with me which is amazing it's one of these things i never set out for it to be like i want this to be a me thing i want people to hear like a double step bend and go oh that's a chris thing um because quite frankly i didn't invent it i'm just nicking it from singers and no doubt there have been a million and one guitar players who've done it before me um it just so happens to be that i'm the guy in this moment in time doing it now people seem to kind of attribute it to me you know which is a bit mental but um yeah it's just i don't know it's one of those things that i guess the more identifiable and the more unique you can sound um within reason obviously you don't want to sound unique for the sake of it and there's plenty of guys who've done that but um it's yeah it's kind of it helps i guess you know and it helps with just being identifiable in a sea of incredibly talented talented musicians who can all kind of sound a little bit the same after a while so 100 percent but it's one of the, sorry, I'm talking over you. Go on, man. Right, go on. No, no, it's, it's, it's one of the reasons that and laziness that I never went down the speed route. And obviously, with Eddie 
Van Halen having passed a couple of days ago, it brought genuinely brought back very vivid memories of getting the best of Van Halen and the best of Finn Lizzy on the same day. Because when you're suddenly, obviously, when you start playing guitar, everyone in your family goes, cool, I'm going to get him some CDs of guitar bands. And then you go from listening to Cisco and the Spice Girls to suddenly like, oh, cool, who are, who are Van Halen? Yeah. Um, and... Um, so suddenly all all this amazing music opens up to you and he's like, oh, cool, I've never heard of Thin Lizzy. I've never heard of Uriah Heep or Aerosmith or Ooh, Guns N' Roses. Um, I had a, a kind of brief understanding of what guitar was prior to that, clearly. Like, my old man's a big Beatles fan and you can't listen to the Beatles without knowing what a guitar is and Clapton and all that kind of stuff. But it was this amazing kind of like, oh, this this world of music. And like I said, I vividly remember getting Van Halen, the best of Van Halen and the best of Thin Lizzy on the same day. I stick in the first tracks on from both records. And the first track on the best of Van Halen was Eruption, obviously. And it just, it blew my, I think like most people when it came out in 78 or whatever, it just blew my mind. I was like, I can't even, I can't even understand this to be a guitar. It sounds like totally alien. And then you stick the best of Thin Lizzy on and the first track was Chinatown, I think, or Boys Are Back in Town or something. And it's like, right, okay, that still sounds hard but that does at least sound like a guitar. I'm going to do that thing because the other thing just sounds like as long as I got a hole in my ass, I'm not going to be able to even begin to replicate that. And that was my initial thing with like, maybe playing fast isn't for me. And then the more guitar players you meet and the more guys you meet who are kind of so technically focused and so intent on being like the fastest or the most kind of precise. And you think, well, you're, that's that's amazing, and there are countless players out there out there who do that incredibly well. But you're never going to be the most precise. You're never going to be the fastest because as soon as you are the fastest, a, a, an eight year old kid from China will come along and be the faster guitar player. Or you know, kind of. Um, yeah. I hear a phrase recently: they'll be the blues feed us next or something. There's always going to be someone who can do something or do it better than you. So the only way in hell. I can be better than anyone else or be kind of standout is to be me, I guess, ultimately, because nobody is going to be able to sound like me more than I sound like me. Um, it's just a physical impossibility because I am me, unfortunately, um, as much as I try not to be. But I just kind of, I remember thinking that like, well, okay, maybe I'll just put more effort into the kind of the feel stuff and the the melodic stuff, because then it's not just a case of like, Oh, the cool. That's, that's impressive. That's very fast, but I know, Johnny Dog down the road who plays in the the Dog and Den in Abercombe Fight Me on a Friday night who's faster than him um, you know because maybe I, I don't know whatever you know it's just kind of trying to do something that is unique to me I guess I remember having that as like a very conscious thought process and then trying to set about kind of trying to do something which was a little bit you bit more unique I guess but whether I've done it or not who bloody knows so no but something you said earlier about um you know, being a musician and knowing your instrument is, is fine. But like Ronnie's a massive, like you were just saying there, Ronnie's a massive fan of like um, front men and singers. And you can really hear that in his playing too, his accents and how he, like yeah. when I, when we write our songs and um, like, especially in the, in the new stuff we're writing at the moment, he's he's listening to my phrasing and in, in, in melody and, and lyrics. And he's kind of, He's just, it's, and it's so important. This You could be the best technical musician in the world, but listening, like... Um, yeah, it's yeah. interaction. It's all interaction. That's- yeah, it's, it's, it's you and that, Chris. It's just using them, man. It's, you know, anybody can... 
I've, I've been like you where I've looked at other drummers and gone, oh, look how fast he's playing or wow, look how quick he's doing that double pedal. But there's no, there's no real groove there without kind yeah. of putting down the player. They're phenomenal. And wow, after, you know, 20 seconds of watching them pretty much catch on fire, you're like, wow, that's, that's incredible. But it just sounds like building a shed to me. That's that's no criticism. <laughs> yeah, yeah. It's just like it's just how quick and how fast they can hit those drums, but there's no actual groove. There's no there's no take home from it. Because even a drum beat, um, you can sing a drum beat, or if it's the right oh, kind absolutely. of groove, do you know what I mean? Or or even the Phil, the, the Phil Collins, you know, in the air tonight. Do 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 do. It's it's there. Like everybody knows it. But when you it's- when you sync that with a guitar lick. Um, or a great vocal line. I mean, that's that's what separates certain players. I think it doesn't matter how many degrees you've got or how much music you can read. Um, to me, it's just using them. It's just listening to everything that's going on in the room and really capturing the vibe. Like you know, so oh, absolutely. And uh, drummers are kind of a great example because obviously, like you said, there are so many technical drummers out there who kind of the clinicians and the kind of guys who go out and, like you said, it's double pedaling and all that kind of stuff and. From a technical kind of perspective, it's amazing. It's incredibly impressive. Mm-hmm. Yeah. It does it does nothing for me to listen to because it doesn't inspire me in any way, shape, or form. And like all of my favorite drummers that I've kind of ever really latched onto are guys like my, I think probably my favorite drummer of all time is Steve Jordan, who's obviously done an insane amount of stuff like John Mayer, but yes. kind of played with like anyone from I think he was kind of um I'm trying to think of some of the stuff he's done. He's done some really kind of bizarre gigs over the years, like James Taylor, but through kind of like stadium pop bands and all this sort of stuff. Mm-hmm. But just like a groove guy, so groove focused. It's just mm-hmm. unreal. And I, I went to see John Mayer years and years ago in Wolverhampton and Steve Jordan was with him. And I was marginally more excited to see Steve Jordan than I was John Mayer. And he must have played about 10 fills all night, but each one of them was amazing and they were in the perfect place. And the rest yeah. of it was just like solid groove. And then... At totally the other end of the spectrum you've got someone like steven adler and i can't imagine anyone else who would have played better better drums on appetite for destruction than steven adler technically speaking abysmal i would imagine from a drumming perspective not really a kind of a technically precise drummer but just everything swung everything had this kind of like loose exciting kind of groove and as much as i love matt sorum as a player i thought matt sorum in, in velvet roller was brilliant Matt's kind of era of Guns N' Roses for me was a bit more just kind of stiff, I guess, ultimately. And a lot of that probably had to do with the fact that it was, it all got a bit more kind of grandiose at that point. You know, you can't really play like Steven Adler over Estranged, I imagine, on November Rain. Um, But Steven Adler was like the perfect drummer for Guns N' Roses for that early stuff. There was just a looseness and an exciting kind of groove and energy about it, which, you know, he was the perfect guy for that, for that job. And like you said, it's about, interacting it's about kind of listening and again I, i've never been especially reliant on tablature or any kind of form of written music you know every, every now and then if something needs to be learned that's a little bit complex just get your head around by using your ear then i'll i'll dig out a piece of tab but learning to just listen to stuff and and be able to interpret what you're hearing or, or parrot it back or kind of mimic it or kind of parody or whatever is so much more important than just being able to kind of read stuff off a page you know because yeah. you develop a year you develop the ability to 
as I said, interpret stuff and just understand what you're hearing. And I mean, Bob, the drummer in Buck and Evans is a great example of that. Me and him have so many like funny little moments where we look around at each other and giggle because we will have synced up on a fill or kind of, I will have done something and he's followed me or vice versa. Just these funny little kind of like interactive moments where it's like, that's what it's about. This band wouldn't be half as fun for any of us if it wasn't a case of, you know, we're, we're listening to one another. Um, but I, I can't say the same for Dominic, bless him, because I can never hear the bass. Um, <laughs> we, had, uh, we, we were doing something recently and um, he was sound checking and he was playing uh, playing a really cool bass line. And I was like, oh, what's that? That sounds awesome. He was like, are you taking a piss? And I was like, no, why? And he was like, never mind. Turns out it's just it's a track I wrote ultimately and his bass part for that. And I was like, oh, maybe I should listen to you more. Um, <laughs> um, you mentioned Bob there. What the human being Bob is! An absolutely incredible, oh, he's a monster, and a brilliant drummer, man. He's honestly, I love Bob the bits. He's as mad as a box of frogs, but he's exactly the type of personality you want in a band because when you've been in the back of the van for 14 hours coming back from Glasgow and you've broken down and spent six hours in Strencham waiting for the RAC to arrive, Bob is still there making jokes and cracking, cracking wise and, and pissing about, you know? And it's like, if it wasn't for people like him, I think I probably would have given up this industry a long time ago because it can be soul destroyingly bloody miserable at various points, but having him just to kind of, and it take any kind of extraordinary musical ability out of it, which he clearly has just like some of my favorite ever moments have been on tour have been kind of going to the toilet in a travel lodge in the morning whilst he's in his bloody boxes, wandering around the room, shouting at Lorraine Kelly on the television whilst listening, whilst listening to the radio on his phone at the same time. Um, just, just, a, a lovely, lovely man, but man's a box of frogs. Like I said, he might well be watching this. So if you are, Bob, how's it going, bud? Nobody. I hope he is. Send us a message if you're watching, Bob. I think <laughs> he is. He did. Uh, I, I kind of missed the comment. He did put an oi up at the top of the show, unless he's tuned out now. He's like, ah, oh, fuck him. Probably, probably lost, in, lost interest as soon as I started talking, I imagine. That's what usually <laughs> happens. <laughs> um, oh, he's a, he's a monster. Such a great drummer. Such a great musician all around as well. He's one of those guys that kind of like great vocalist, great at backing vocals, pick, can pick a harmony out of anything. Um, you know, kind of really good guitar player as well. He started off playing guitar. Um, oh, yes. So, oh yeah, I'm here. There we go. Hi, bud. Well, buddy. Um, I'm going to stop saying nice things about him now. <laughs> he's, a, he's a terrible man. Kills small dogs in his uh, in his downtime. So, so how did how did the band come together then? Back in Evans, how did that happen? Um, Britain's Got Talent. Uh, um, no, it was um, it was a weird one actually. I got offered a gig. Um, can you remember Sandy Tom? That name might, might ring a bell. Long, long time ago, she had one kind of big hit. Wish I was a punk rocker with flowers in my hair. Um, and um, bizarrely, I got offered a support slot for her um, at a place called Madame Jojo's in Soho in London, which it turns out was a burlesque club. Really weird. Um, it's gone now, as are most of the venues. Um, but um, I got offered this gig, I think, on the assumption that I, I sang. And as I've said, I'm clearly not a singer. Um, so I was kind of scratching around and was a bit of a kind of loss as to what to do or what band to kind of put together for this show. Transpired, all they wanted was a duo because all Sandy Tom was doing was a kind of acoustic set. 
Um, so I was like, oh, cool. Well, I'll ask Sally Ann. So I'd done a gig with Sally Ann about a year prior, I guess. And I'd only ever known Sally Ann through the Steelhouse Festival, which obviously was kind of her thing. And so I'd only ever kind of known her on that side of the curtain or that side of the stage, I guess. But a lot of her mates had kind of said, oh, she's got a great voice. And they're like, oh, yeah, of course she has. We all sound great in the shower, I imagine. And then um, I heard her sing or something. I was like, okay, they weren't lying. She's got a great voice. And um, so I gave her a call thinking literally it would be a case of like, get together, have a couple of rehearsals, put together like a 30-minute set, do it, part ways, cheers, see you soon, you know. Um, so we did this gig. Um, funny story as well. The only reason I took the gig was at the time, um, I don't think I've ever said this, Sandy Tom was going out with Joe Bonamassa. And, and Joe Bonamassa was playing in London the night after. So I was like, clearly he's going to be at the gig. And if you want to get ahead in the industry, go and try and impress Joe Bonamassa with your licks. Um, so did the gig, no sign, hide, no hair of Joe. And it turns out they split up like a week later. So that might explain it. Um, but um, so I did this gig with Sal and we, we had kind of just an amazing response to it. We had kind of marginally better reviews come off the back of the gig than Sandy Tom. So, so it was a case of like, oh, we might as well keep going. We might as well write some tunes. So we did. And then uh, kind of one thing rolled into another. And then before you know it, we were out in Arizona. So I think that was in the April of whatever year it was, um, a couple of years ago now. That was in the April. And by the August, we were out in Arizona as Slash's backing band for the night um, for a, a kind of trip, not a tribute gig so much as a kind of um, a fundraiser, I guess. There was a, Alan, long story short, Alan, my manager, lives in Arizona. Um, and they just had some like horrific wildfires and there'd been like a really terrible loss of firefighters. I think it was the single biggest loss of firefighters in one go since 9-11. So it's clearly a big thing. And Prescott, which is where Alan lives, is this tiny little mountain town. So it's like, I don't know, it's like a place as big as Neath or something having this horrific event, you know? So clearly everyone kind of clubs together and this, this kind of real sense of community and, and Alan spearheaded this kind of gig the headliner of which was slash there was a load of local bands uh, back and evans did a couple of things but the headliner clearly was slash who just flew across on his own with him no guitar just him and his bodyguard um we jumped in a room and started bashing out a couple of tracks so we did like a couple of stones tracks uh a bit of hendrix did a couple of guns and roses tracks obviously and i had a, a horrific moment in rehearsal that afternoon where i came without within about an inch of asking slash if he was sure he was playing paradise city right um it, it, it got to that bit again having been like little slash or mini slash for a very long time i was pretty sure i knew guns and roses stuff very well and um obviously better than he, he does and um we got to that kind of bit just before the first solo where he goes down and then into the first solo and i've always thought this was g to f um it was absolutely g to f and he was playing c to uh, b flat i was like what are you, what are you doing <laughs> you I think I think you're playing that wrong. Um, so I, I managed to stop myself about an in short, which he found very funny. Um, but we did this gig and and Sal kind of got up and sang and I was the guitar player and we had a, a kind of band built around us out there. So the long and the short of it was Buck and Evans went from, that's why we've got such a horrific name. Was It was like Buck and Evans. What do we need? We need a name and we need some songs. What are you called? You're Evans. I'm Buck. There we go. That's sorted. There we go. Um, and we've been stuck with it ever since, sounding like solicitors on a on a on a rock gig. Um, so um, back in Evans and Co. Um, so it all it all escalated very quickly. So we thought, right, well, we we need an EP. So we jumped in the studio. Bob and Dom got on board, and 
et cetera, et cetera. And the rest, as they say, is not history. Um, but yeah, it all just kind of went from one one thing to another, really. And, you know, it just, it's always been fun. I can appreciate that. And we've, we've had this feedback many a time from kind of people in the industry and all that kind of stuff. It's, if you look at it before you listen to it, people go, what the, what's that all about? You know, with this, this airy guy and this, this, this lot, you know, it's, it's a bit strange to get your head around and the people who listen to it and then look are like, oh, well, it makes, makes perfect sense, you know? Mm-hmm. And, um, you know, I'm not so naive as to think that this is not an image driven industry. You know, it's kind of one of the reasons that all the biggest bands of all time look particularly cool as well. You know, it's part and parcel of it. Um, but it's just great fun. It's great fun whether we're writing, it's great fun whether we're gigging or whether we're in a van dicking around, you know, sticking stupid Snapchat filters on Bob when he's asleep. Every bit of it is just always great fun. And that's, you know, kind of, for me at least, that's what it should be about. Because if you don't enjoy it and you don't do it for the love of it, first and foremost, put it this way, if we did it for the money, we wouldn't be together. So, um, it's it's uh, it's the same with the Crows. I mean, these boys, you know, sometimes... Especially when the, the shit hits the fans, you know, like it's happened a couple of times when I've gone on tour and my voice is, isn't there. And, and and if it weren't for these boys, you know, I've known pretty much the majority of my life, um, I probably would have jacked it in, you know. It's, it's yeah, them yeah. that take you to the next level or just, you know, drag you the fuck along. Um, and, um, yeah, it's and, and well, Germany in particular, it's, it's one of the best trips we've had. I mean... Oh, awesome. I, I, I love this probably because we haven't done much because of lockdown, but um, yeah, yeah. I, I think there's a, there's, it got to the point where I think the first three years it was like, right, let's try and, you know, be something, let's, you know, put our all into it. And now there's a, cause you know, we get a little bit of momentum as you, as you put it. Yeah, absolutely. Still need that, that camaraderie, that, that, you know, someone to say you're being a dick or, or just, you know, hit it with reality. And these yeah, boys yeah. do they they they're my brothers like and um you you gotta have that otherwise what is the point because it's so difficult the job i think it's... you hit it on the, the, the i think you hit the nail on the head there bro it's the amount of time you spend in a van like chris said um the first few years first few years is like a honeymoon stage it is like a new girlfriend yeah, yeah. everybody doesn't want to kind of upset anybody it's all cool it's all gravy everything's cool and then then you start to realize it is an uphill battle it's completely uphill and you start working out those that, that might be kind of falling behind because they're not, it's too hard. It's, it's, a, it's a battle like, you know, and I think where we are as a band in particular is we've kind of broken through all the, um, all the crap, all the, all the mud and everything worked out where we are songwriting wise, worked out where we are personality wise. And now I think Germany was just not even because we haven't seen each other. It was almost like it's all your apprenticeship done. It's everything. We know where we are now. So we could just enjoy ourselves, do the job professionally um, and just make it memorable then because, you know, it might not be there. You know, that's, that's the other thing. You've got to kind of stop, like you said, in the van, um, at one point to me, and I suppose you do it, Chris, and I suppose Bob has done it throughout his career. Um, you have to you have to stop sometimes and kind of appreciate what you're doing. Um, and I know previous bands, I didn't do that. You kind of you're always on the go, what's next, what's next, what's what's next? But you don't have that that snapshot of wow, look what we're doing at the moment. This yeah, is incredible, yeah. like you know. So I think we've all kept each other in check by there and and made sure there's a break, you know. Hang on, stop, everybody stop, just appreciate this right now. Yeah. Now we move on, like, you know, so. That's, honestly, I'm terrible at that, and I know I should do it more often, but, like, a great example of of that, we did um, download a couple of years ago. We did the, the second stage of download, 
And in hindsight, that's such a cool moment. Like you guys are doing download next year, aren't you? Yeah. 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 It's like playing Donington. Like how big is that? Did I appreciate any of that? Absolutely not. Cause I was just so, I don't really get, it's funny. I was talking to this, uh, about someone about this the other day. I don't really get nervous. It's not nervous in a way that would ever manifest itself in my kind of playing wrong notes or whatever. I just get this kind of nervous energy, I guess, where I'm a little bit of a, an arsehole to be around for the half hour prior to a show where it's just like, I want to get on stage now. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> um, but download was a great example of that because I just, I remember being so stressed about everything. And in fairness, it was a bit of a nightmare gig as well because it was it was raining. It was like, you need an arc to get to the stage, never mind a bloody buggy. Um, the gear got absolutely drenched coming across the stage. Sally-Ann got, was getting changed in a, a dressing room. Um, so obviously we were in Derby. She was in Nottingham, I think. Um, so she had to then try and get a bloody train across the site or something to try and get the stage in time. It was just a nightmare. Everything about that gig was stressful, but I just didn't appreciate any of it as a, as a consequence. You know, I think that with the fact that it was a, a big deal, I just regret it in hindsight because it's like, that is one of the moments where, like you said, you've got to stop and smell the roses every now and then because mm, yeah. it, it is such hard work and you feel bad saying that. Cause I guess for outsiders looking in think really you're a rock and roll band with your mates, pissing around, getting drunk, going playing rock gigs. What was to moan about? You know, you could be down a pit, as I keep saying. I need to think of a better reference point. Um, <laughs> you could be doing any number of jobs which are just infinitely worse than that. But it's the the kind of mental toll it takes, I guess. Like you said, it's that constant, right, what's next? What's next? What's next? How can we make sure that, like, whatever men- momentum we've built, built at this point, how can we capitalize on that? How can we keep that going? And until you were the Rolling Stones, I don't think that ever ends. You know, I don't think uh, until you're at a point where you think, yeah, I could probably take 10 years off now, come back and do a record and people will still care. That never ends, you know, and it's kind of reconciling with that. And I think it's been cool with that idea and managing it then with the idea that you need to appreciate it along the way. I think, I think it was um, the Foo Fighters documentary they did um, where they recorded a, a track in a different a kind of different studio across the US. Yeah, Every track was in a different studio. Right, and I think Josh Holm was on that and they kind of interviewed him and said, you know, why, why do you do it? Or what advice would you give to up and comers? And it was paraphrasing him badly. It was very much based around love it. First and foremost, you've got to do it for the love of it because if you do it for any other reason, you won't last. You won't last 10 minutes, never mind 10 years. And you have you have got to just get enjoyment out of it first and foremost because yeah like you said it's just it's it can be the the best job in the world and the worst it can be soul destroying and then the next night it, uh, touring is a perfect example you play one venue and three people turn up and it's like yeah. why are we bothering this is the worst thing in the world and the next night sold out for some inexplicable reason and suddenly yeah. you were rock stars again and it's like out managing that kind of that high and that low and still finding some kind of middle ground to kind of sit in without being so dependent on the kind of the up and, ups and downs of it i guess so yeah it's tricky yeah. I think, yeah, it's so we're we're so um like for example we come back from germany half past two in the morning the following day one o'clock in the afternoon we were having a meeting what's next we are we are so yeah. driven we are so that that is just how we are but like you similar to what you were saying about when you were on stage with slash you can't really remember that when we did the download gig last year we played the dog tooth stage i cannot tell you what i did in that, on that set because the, the yeah. kind of took over 
And I was kind of on autopilot. I don't really know if I sang okay. I don't even know if I sang the right words. Probably didn't because I never do. But um, the, the point is now, it was only like we did the gig in Germany and I sat down on the keyboard, <clears throat> excuse me, and I had this moment of, it was the first time I've ever been on stage and thought, I am completely in this moment. I'm yeah, so yeah. proud of this moment. And that's never happened to me on stage, ever. Um, <laughs> I don't know whether that's the the COVID thing, and I was so happy to be on stage again. But I almost think it's done me personally a favour to not take that shit for granted. Um, and and we had, like I said, I keep saying, it, we had such a blast in Germany, and, and I was with my boys, and, and what better company to do it with. And I was just so appreciative of that moment, and I'm going to take that now with every show the Crows do. And hopefully it'll make us better musicians, because I, I think if you're free... To be thinking that clearly in your mind, I think your performance level will go up notches. So, um, absolutely. watch your speed. <laughs> yeah, yeah, good, good luck. No, absolutely. It's it's one of my one of the reasons, I guess, why a lot of my favorite bands always look as though they're having a great time. You look at Springsteen yeah. and the E Street Band. Every single that every single member of that band looks like they would rather be nowhere else on earth than on that stage entertaining you. And mm. it's like it's such an infectious thing that comes across not only kind of internally or to see yourself or to the rest of the band, but the crowd, you know, there is something really infectious about watching someone, like you said, in the moment, present and having a great time. And I, I'm terrible at that as well. It's happened once or twice to me, I guess, where you settle into a gig and you know you're having a good gig. And especially, I guess, same as kind of singing, I guess, as a guitar player, certain nights, it just all kind of feels feels good. You know that if you go for a note, you'll probably land on it, whether you kind of whereas the the night before everything was a little bit more work and it wasn't kind of working out um certain nights just are just great and they are the only occasions where i'm like this is really cool this is i'm with three people i love and i know really well we all get on and we're gonna all right we're gonna have a couple of hours in a van and to dick about tomorrow but we get to do this again tomorrow night probably to another load of people it's like those are the moments you wish you could bottle that and if ev if every moment of being a musician was like that um, there'd probably be lots more people who'd be musicians. Um, but it's the, the kind of the, the 3am in, um, frankly services trying to eat a bloody stale sausage roll is the, uh, is the other, other side of the coin. But, um, it's like you said, you've got to enjoy it and you've got to do it for the right reasons. Cause it's, it's tough, but, um, so then it's the best job in the world. This is, this is, that's the thing in it. This is why people get sucking into it. <laughs> Not so bitter. Um, <laughs> Because there are like highs like I've never experienced anywhere ever doing anything, whatever you can think of. Nothing can be as joyous or as kind of like ecstasy, whatever the, the word, ecstasy, whatever, and happy yeah. as kind of being on stage in front of, uh, you know, it doesn't matter how many people just doing something that you love. It's like that is the most joyous moment in the world. Yeah. And then, you know, if every moment was like that, we'd all be all right, wouldn't we? But... <laughs> well, me, and, me and Shane's had loads of conversations lately, Chris, about um, we've always wanted this since we were kids. Like, you know, we've even said it to teachers, oh, you know, we want to be a rock star or whatever. Yeah. And um, it's because there's two flavours. It's exactly what you said. It's like when you bottle that that electricity, that vibe, that that special moment on stage that you can't... You can't explain that to anybody. That's why I kind of I don't play under the influence of anything because I find that that is enough for me. That's overpowering. 
Yeah, um, yeah. And then the second one is when you write a really cool song. It doesn't matter if the world haven't heard it. To you, if it's with you, with your buddies, and you're in a room, and there's a new song, and it's that vibe. You know, you know what I'm on about. And it's like, yeah. and you, you're just all in the moment, and you know it's not even finished. You haven't even added all the dressings to the song. It's just the backbones of it, and you're just all smiling. You're all laughing, or a hook line comes in from a vocal, and you're like, oh my god, that's massive. Like you know, <laughs> yeah, so. Yeah. That's the second bottle, like, you know, it's, yeah, it's incredible. That moment of knowing that you're onto a winner with a song is great, isn't it? It's kind of, you know, it was for all the songs that you write, you know, kind of 80% of them might be absolutely shite, but it's the 20% yeah. then which makes up a record. And I remember yeah. speaking to, um, it's always intrigued because, you know, I've written some songs, I think are, are decent songs, nothing on a level that would be kind of a global hit. But I'm always intrigued whenever I meet anyone who kind of has been in that situation. I remember asking Bernie Marsden about it. Like when you wrote Here I Go Again, did you know you just written Here I Go Again? And I've asked him on two separate occasions now and he's given me different answers on both occasions. The first time was like, yeah, I think we did. I think we we had a, we, we really had a sense that we were onto something. It was obviously him and Coverdale. And the the other time, which was probably the marginally more kind of accurate answer, was like I don't know really, I don't know we, whether we we kind of all right we thought it was good, but you, I don't think anyone ever foresees like oh this is going to be used on adverts in forty years time, you know. Yeah. Um, but it's cool in that that moment, like you said, it's the two flavors, it's the two kind of ends of the spectrum, and it's yeah. bal- balancing those and finding a happy medium. Because otherwise, if you do swing wildly from the the highs to the lows, you know it's it's no way to live. It's you know whether that's music, whether that's any kind of creative profession, I guess. You know whether you're an artist, whether you're whatever. If you go from one mad high of playing a gig and then to one kind of depressing low the next day, it's it's not sustainable. It's not viable to live that way. So yeah, 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 for sure, man. It's life. It's life that kind of pulls you in that direction because you're obviously fighting. You're on about that balance thing, which yet again is a regular conversation with me and Shane. When you, we're we're very fortunate the position he's put himself in and myself. We're we're driving this full time, um, because you just feel you're putting everything into it. And since since I've done that, you almost feel there's no pressure from anywhere else. As long as you've got the support from everyone who loves you yeah. and everything, all of a sudden that, that those creative juices are flowing. The the experiences are, are kind of inflated, like they're, they're just bigger, like, you know? So it's such a shame for the many musicians out there that have to fight with that, that balancing because that can almost be a hindrance. Like it can pull you off from a path that you could have gone down and so many give it up, like, you know, which is oh, such a shame. I think there's a lot of people who probably have a hell of a lot of regret around that as well, you know, kind of maybe think what if I'd stuck at it an extra six months? You know, what if I'd given it a year of undivided attention rather than having to balance it with, well, it's not going to pay for a while, you know, so I have to have a normal job. I think there's yeah. a, probably a lot of people with a lot of regret in that respect. And I, I've always been incredibly lucky in that my parents were really cool with the idea of, of me being a musician. You know, both of them had very kind of more kind of traditional stable jobs, I guess. You know, my mother was a teacher and my dad had been a graphic designer, but then worked in production. So kind of they both had more kind of traditional jobs and I, I was always very surprised and really grateful I guess that both of them were like if you want to be a, a musician then go for it you know kind of you'll only regret it if you don't and I think my old man especially had had a bit of that you know there's certain things that he wishes he'd done in life and has always kind of been racked with regret around them so I think that in hindsight was very lucky that my old man had had that experience and was so kind of understanding of what I wanted to do and really encouraging of it but 
like you said, it's it's having to balance it with stuff and it's having to find a happy medium. Like it's only within the past kind of, like I guess four years, I guess that I've been kind of full time, I guess. And I say full time. I've I've only done music for a very long time now, probably about ten years, I guess. I mean, I dropped out of uni. I did my first year of uni, and um, it just was clear that a I wasn't enjoying it, and b the band I was in at the time was getting pretty busy, and it was a case of one or the other. And clearly, I uh, university didn't last. So, um, that it's been a good number of years now that I've only been doing music, but it's only been within kind of very recent memory that it's been kind of I haven't so much had to rely on the kind of wedding stuff or I haven't had so much to rely on the kind of the stuff which ironically I quite enjoy what I do now because the pressure's gone you're thinking I'm kind of doing this all right for the money but it's kind of enjoyable as well you know a good bunch of lads within the covers band or whatever but it's just kind of I don't know it is balancing it and it's kind of finding that happy medium between knowing that you do have to put food on the table but at the same time this is a job which for a very long time doesn't pay you know and then I've kind of had the experience that, again, Alan, my manager, kind of told me I would have, where he said, you'll be eternally pushing a very big ball up a very big hill. And he said, it'll seem like it's never ending and you're never going to reach the crest of that hill. And then suddenly, not only do you reach the crest of the hill, but there's a, there's a downward slope on the other side. And he said, the rest of your life is then spent chasing the ball, trying to catch it up to slow it down. And yeah. that's kind of pretty much what's happened to me, I guess, within the past two years, you know, when been very very lucky in that respect even more so like i said when this is a time when a lot of musicians are kind of dying on their ass so um it's just through hard work i guess ultimately you know i've put a lot of effort into it whether that's just the the diligence of doing like a weekly youtube thing or whether it's just the kind of not giving up you know and kind of keeping at it when they were undoubtedly times where i was like bollocks to this this is too hard you know this is this is making me too miserable why am i doing it you know and just powering through those moments so yeah, man, absolutely. It, it reminds me actually of a time when I I was a kitchen designer um, <laughs> when the band started, and it was it was good money. I had a, a lovely home, um, great kitchen as well. I imagine. Yeah, yeah, it was good actually. It was a nice one. Yeah. <laughs> um, but um, dude, they were the days. No, it's not good. you give me all the press because my kitchen no, is shit. <laughs> I'm here. I'm here in my shed now. Yeah, yeah. No, but um, I didn't want to be that guy who sits there and speaks to his kid and said, oh, I could have done that. You know, yeah, dad, yeah. Yeah, dad, you know, dad used to do the write songs and, you know, I did the publishing thing and I was writing pen and uh, songs for other people and stuff. And, and But I was like, there's more of me than that. Um, but then I found myself in that trap because you live to your means. Then you start putting all your focus on something you're not happy with. And the minute, I think you could be the hardest working person in the world, right? If you haven't got the balls, and I, and I mean this respectively, like, but if you haven't got that in you to make those cutthroat decisions, then sadly you are going to live in regret the rest of your life. Because I, what I did was I'm going to give myself six to eight months um, and this is all I'm going to think about. And at the end of that, if that's not going, if it's not going up, and I'm not having progress, then fair enough. At least I can say I gave six to eight months of my life wholeheartedly, not, you know, all, all guns blazing. Um, and as soon as I did that, I couldn't believe the the trajectory of the band because I was putting more effort into it. Yeah, yeah. it um, we did that. And it was just, so it's not even, you can, you can talk yourself up to something so quickly because it's fear. 
is oh what if it doesn't work oh no but if you if you've got the ability like take a punt on yourself you you will not it's so remarkable what you can achieve if you just take a punt on yourself and believe it and know it and feel it um absolutely that's the serious part dude that that just that initial thought you get out of the way i guarantee you i guarantee it if you want it that much the, the thing is even if after those six to eight months you hadn't had the trajectory that you wanted and everything had kind of maybe ground to a halt at least you could say to yourself and you could look yourself in the mirror and go at least i gave it my best crack you know if you hadn't have done that you know thankfully it worked out incredibly well if you hadn't have done it though, there always would have been that element of uh, I was I was on the verge of giving it a go. I could have done this, or Daddy could have done that, but yeah. I was I was a bit scared, and I thought, well, a regular pay packet is um is, is preferable over living out in the mouth or kind of stressing about about where the next, you know, am I going to pay my gas bill? Yeah, but like you said, if you don't take that plunge, you don't know whether you'll sink or swim, you know. And because one of my kids is is really creative, um, art in particular, and um. And of course, you now the government, they're putting up those like, you know, what, what, what was that yeah. the other day we spoke about a ballerina and the arts and stuff and get it retrained and what have you. And I'm trying to empower my daughter because with creativity is individuality, is power, is, you know, people then want to have that from you. So, you know, you're creating your own boss, your own revenue, your own, and that's powerful as a human being. And you're trying to encourage that with your child only for then the government to go, well, no, you need to, you know, do university, be skint because you're paying all those loans and blah, blah, blah. You may not be happy when you find that job, you know? Um, so art and creativity, but that's, that's the whole nature of humans. And I think we've fallen into this trap and gone off on a tangent here. But we, we're, in a, we're in a position now where it's all about the money. It's all about the green stuff. And it's, and it's not. It's really not. It's not. It's, there's such a warped attitude towards the arts like you said and that that poster that um Fatima's next job could be in cyber or whatever it is yeah. that is that's so indicative of it you know this it's not taken seriously and irrespective of how much how many billions it brings into the economy on a yearly basis you know whether we're talking grassroots or whether we're talking you two putting on stadium tours mm. it brings such an insane amount of money into the economy and that's just live music take dance out of that take you know I, i've been to a couple of operas in my time you know my, my missus has dragged me along usually um and like you know kind of ballet and stuff like that and it's like just always being incredulous at not how not only how many people are there but how many people that's employing you know whether that's the lighting technicians whether it's the sound technicians whether it's the orchestra whether it's the ballerinas themselves yeah. it's like it's such a big industry and it's such a big not only employer if you want to bring it down to brass tacks it's such a big employer of so many people Yet, when times are tough, it's, again, it, it, it honestly blows my mind because when times are tough, what does everyone turn to? Exactly. Netflix or music or really? some yeah. kind of form of like entertainment. And it's like, we are the entertainers ultimately. But at the same time, they're the first ones to go, well, that's where we need to make the money. That's where we need to cut the money because, yeah. well, they're not, what are they, what are they providing really? You know, kind of, if we cut their funding, we can put that in other directions. And it's like, well, do it at your peril because you'll all be fucking miserable when it all goes tits up again. So they look at it, it's not a real job and it's, it's, it's bullshit. It's utter bullshit. It's just a machine trying to get you to think negatively towards something that's so positive. Mm. So much happiness. It's, um, it's insane. Can Considering it's not a real job, they're happy enough to take my tax every year. So. <laughs> Absolutely. <laughs>
how, how do we end up here? I know. <laughs> have, we got, have we got time for Brexit yet? Or? <laughs> oh, man. Well, there we are. Anyway, bud, it's been an absolute pleasure having you on. Thank you so much for joining us, bud. No, thank you for having me. Genuinely, it's been a lot of fun. It's been, uh, I love doing stuff like this. And it's, like I said, it's even more enjoyable when you don't have to not only temper what you're saying, but you can speak at your normal speed and your normal accent. So, <laughs> yeah, we might have to put subtitles up on when we replay it back. But, um, oh. but thank you so much for joining us. Hey, before you leave, bud, we're going to do something new now for everybody watching as well on Crowcast. Um, we, we're putting up um, a new playlist every week on, on Spotify and all, all the. The, the guests we have on, I'm going to ask you, but um, have you got a song that we can add to this playlist? One of your... One of my... Oh, um, probably do Slow Train, I guess. Um, Back in Evans. Um, that's the one, if you might have heard one of our tracks, it might be that one. Um, and it's got a solo in it, so there we go. <laughs> yeah. Um, yeah, stick stick Slow Train on there, I guess. If it, if it has to be one of mine, if it doesn't, I can give you a million and one better suggestions. So. <laughs> no, one of your... Chris, absolute gentleman. Thank you so much for joining us. Shane, Ronnie, thank you very much, boys. See you take soon, buddy. Take care, guys. See you soon. Oh, man. Thanks for listening to Crowcast Podcast. Don't forget, this episode is also available to watch on our YouTube channel. For up-to-date information on everything Crows, follow us on all our socials or visit our website, thosedamncrows.com. Tidy. Ta-da!